And if you want to open up with me in your copy of Scripture to John chapter 13, we'll be continuing our study through John's great gospel. Now, last week we looked at the famous account of the washing of the disciples' feet. We saw that in John 13, John begins a new section of his gospel, this book of exaltation, and to zoom in even further, we see the disciples gathered in what we often call the upper room discourse. They're gathered together on the night our Lord was betrayed, and we see this intimate setting where our Lord has gathered his 12 disciples around him, and we saw last week that he washes their feet. And we saw this not only demonstrates the love of Christ, but it's sort of this physical picture of our need to be washed by Christ, to be cleansed by him, that it's the only way our sins can be forgiven, our consciences can be cleansed, as if Christ cleanses us not only outwardly, but inwardly, as Jesus alluded to in his conversation with the disciple Peter. And we saw that that is the only foundation of our wanting to love and serve others is the fact that Christ has first washed us. And it's very interesting, one commentator pointed out that the section that we looked at last week and the section that we'll look at this week, concluding at verse 30, kind of pictures this cleansing of the new messianic or covenant community that last time we looked at the literal cleansing by washing, right? Jesus washes the feet of the disciples. And this week we turn and we will see the figurative cleansing from Judas, the betrayer. So we saw a literal cleansing last week. This week we will see a figurative cleansing of the new covenant community. That as we look to God's word this morning, we will see the prediction, the identification and the dismissal of our Lord's betrayer, Judas Iscariot. That one of the twelve, one of Jesus' own disciples, one that had washed their feet by our Lord, will betray him. Will ultimately hand him over to be crucified and killed for a mere 30 pieces of silver. But what we're going to see today is that our Lord is not surprised by any of this. <laughs> it is not a shock to him, this betrayal of Judas, that our Lord will actually show us how this is a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. And we'll see that even though this betrayal will cause our Lord great trouble in his soul, he knows whom he has chosen, and as God incarnate, he is completely sovereign over this situation and is not surprised by it. Even though this prediction of betrayal will cause his other 11 disciples to fear and to even examine themselves, we see that it only hardens the heart of Judas. It only further deepens him in his sin of betrayal. But it is actually through this act of betrayal that our Lord and his people will be cleansed and purified. God's ultimate purpose of salvation in the crucifixion of Christ on the cross will be fulfilled and God will redeem his people. So I'm going to read our passage this morning. I'll pray for us and then we will look to God's word. 
I'll begin at verse 12 just to give us some context going to verse 30. This is the word of the Lord. Now when he, that is Jesus, had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord and you are right for so I am. If I then, your teacher and Lord, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. But we come to our verses this week in verse 18. Jesus says this, I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen. But the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he, or literally, that I am. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. And after saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what you need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. And after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come before this sobering passage as we see the account of Judas identified, predicted, and dismissed. The one who lifted up his heel against our Lord. And we pray, Lord, that as we come to this passage this morning, that we would come soberly to your word, and we ask that by the power of your Spirit, you would illumine the eyes of our hearts, that we might see and understand the seriousness of our sin, the greatness of Christ in the gospel, and our great need this morning to be washed and cleansed by Christ. We pray that you will do these things. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. We're going to look at three different things this morning, three different things in verses 18 through 21. We're going to see the betrayer predicted. 
the betrayer predicted. In verses 22 through 26, we'll see the betrayer identified. And finally, in verses 27 through 30, we'll see the betrayer dismissed. So first, we'll look at the betrayer predicted. If you remember last week, we didn't speak about it very much, but all the way back in verse 2, we see that the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot to betray our Lord, right? As one commentator said, he had already cast the fiery dart of temptation into Judas's heart even before the washing of the disciples' feet. And if you look down at verse 11, Jesus already knew who was going to betray him. Jesus knows that not all those that are washed outwardly are going to be washed inwardly. And we see Jesus having shown his great love for his disciples now predicts his great betrayal by one of his own. And we see that in verse 18. He says, I am not speaking of all of you. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen. Jesus knows whom he has chosen. And as we've said, he's not surprised by this betrayal in any way. You could go all the way back to John chapter 6, verse 70. He says, did I not choose you the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil, right? Our Lord is not caught off guard by the betrayal of Judas. He's not taken by surprise. And we see in our passage that, in fact, this is taking place in fulfillment of an Old Testament passage, namely Psalm 41, verse 9, that is quoted by our Lord. In Psalm 41, as we spoke about this morning, David is crying out to God. He is crying out to God. Those that are closest to him have conspired against him. His closest friend who ate his own bread has lifted up his heel against him and his own counselor has betrayed him. If you go to the Old Testament, 2 Samuel chapter 15, verse 12, we see that what this psalm is based on is exactly what happened in David's life. If you're familiar with this story, his own wicked son, Absalom, and his own counselor, Ahipothel, conspired against David to betray him for their own gain. It's an amazing story. You can go back in 2 Samuel and read that maybe after the service. You see Absalom was this wicked son of David, tries to take the throne. He's ultimately caught in a tree by his head and dies and is and is killed there in that tree. But we see in Psalm 41, David writes about this in his feelings of betrayal. You could look at your um, handout this morning, or you could turn in Psalm 41. We see David account, recount and cry out on his feelings of betrayal. He begins in Psalm 41, verse 5. He says, My enemies say of me in malice, When will he die and his name perish? When one comes to see me, he utters empty words while his heart gathers iniquity. And when he goes out, he tells it abroad. And then it says in verse 9, Even my close friend to whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. That 
I mean, David here is just accounting, recounting his feelings of betrayal. But what Jesus is saying is this was a prophecy and was fulfilled in the betrayal of Judas. That in Judas taking his bread and lifting his heel against Christ has fulfilled Psalm 41, verse 9. His own close friend, his own disciple, seeks to destroy our Lord. Jesus says that's fulfilled in this betrayal. But what's so amazing about Scripture is that this strand of prophecy stretches back even further than Psalm 41 all the way back to Genesis 3.15. That this metaphor used in the Old Testament of lifting up a heel against someone could have several different meanings. One of them is a a horse throwing a rider off of its back, but it can also mean and refer to a wrestler that takes the heel of someone, grasps it, and trips them up seeking to supplant their opponent. If you've ever seen wrestlers, they try to grab the ankles of someone so they can sweep their legs, so they can supplant them, so they can trip them up. And this same word used in Psalm 41 for heal is used in Genesis 3.15 in the first promise of the gospel. That in the crushing of the serpent's head, that the offspring of the woman would have their heel bruised or crushed. That this enmity between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman was promised all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. That ever since the beginning, ever since the first book of the Bible, the work of the serpent has been to bruise, crush, and supplant the heel of the seed of the woman, the offspring of the woman, lifting up against the promised offspring. And we see this typified and pictured in David's betrayal by his own son, but we see it come to fulfillment in Judas' betrayal of our Lord. And so we see this betrayal was predicted, and I mean that word in two ways, not just by our Lord who predicts in this account his betrayal, but it's predicted all the way back in the Old Testament in Genesis and in Psalms. And we see that Jesus tells his disciples this before it takes place so that they, so that when it does take place, they may believe that he is I am. If you look there at verse 19, it says, I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. That's how the ESV renders it, but literally it is that I am. Right? You remember in John chapter 8, Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. (laughs) Ego eimi. Right, which was the Greek translation of the Old Testament covenant name for God, Yahweh, that he reveals to Moses in the burning bush. I am that I am. This is the covenant name for God. Jesus here applies this to himself. And if you don't believe that, what Jesus is doing here is quoting Isaiah 43, verse 10. He is quoting Isaiah 43, verse 10, where Yahweh says these things so that they may know and believe and understand that I am. 
Before me, no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. This is a very famous passage to go to to prove the oneness of God, and it's to prove that there's only one true and living God. But Jesus here quotes this and applies it to himself, identifying himself as Yahweh, the I Am, of Isaiah 43, verse 10. So in these two short verses, Jesus is not only showing that he is the promised seed of the woman, the one whose heel would be bruised in the crushing of the serpent's head, the promised Messiah, the Christ, he's also claiming to be God. He's also claiming to be God, Yahweh of the Old Testament, the one true and living God, the I am that I am, none before, none after, of the same substance of the Father, God of God, light of light, as the Nicene Creed reads. And I think this helps us make sense of the next verse, verse 20. Many commentators comment that this kind of feels out of place. What does Jesus mean when he says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one that sent me. I think it helps us make sense when we see that Jesus is identifying himself as God, that to receive the one who Christ sends, the one who brings the good news of the gospel, is to receive Christ himself. And in receiving Christ, they receive nothing less than God himself, right? Because Jesus is God. But not only do we see Christ's divinity alluded to in this passage, we also see Christ's true humanity. And we see that in verse 21. It says that after saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit. That Jesus was truly man. He felt the weight, the crushing weight of this betrayal that he was about to experience. Maybe some of us in this room have been betrayed before by someone close to us, right? Maybe it was a coworker. Maybe it was a family member. Maybe it was a friend. Maybe it was a spouse. Maybe a coworker blamed an incident on you that wasn't your fault. Maybe a friend gossiped about you behind your back and lied about you. Or maybe a family member or spouse broke your trust and caused you great pain. We've all felt these feelings of betrayal. And it seems that the closer the friend, the deeper the wound, right? And we see in this passage that Christ, as truly man, he is not unfeeling about this betrayal that he's about to experience. He knows what it's like to be betrayed. He feels greatly troubled by this. And even though he knows what is going to happen, it was promised in the Old Testament, he still feels the weight and sorrow of this betrayal by one close to him. And that's why he says in verse 21, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. But it is in this saying of this out loud, predicting that one of his own will betray him, that causes a response in his true disciples and a desire from them to identify his betrayer. And so that leads us to our second point, the betrayer identified the betrayer identified. That we see in verse 22 that the other disciples 
do not know what is going on. <laughs> they have no idea what Jesus is talking about. That at this point, even though we have John recounting this account, recounting this account, that makes sense, I think. John is recounting this, but at the time, nobody knew what was going on. It's not like everybody knew who the betrayer was. And so we see Peter motion to John, the beloved disciple mentioned here, to ask Jesus who it is that is going to betray him. We see in verse 22 that the disciples are looking around at one another. Who is it? Who is the one that's going to betray our Lord? And I think that if we look at this and think about it, it can seem as if Christ here is adding to their agony. Adding to their agony by not revealing who the betrayer is immediately. I mean, imagine being in that room and Jesus just says, one of you is going to betray me. It's anonymous. They don't know who the betrayer is. And so you can imagine some of them thinking, is it me? Am I going to be the one that betrays our Lord? Is it me? And so we could see how this would cause them maybe some fear, but it also could cause them to examine themselves and see whether Jesus is speaking about them. I was really helped in this passage by John Calvin in his commentary on the Gospel of John. He says these words, Though Christ appears to be somewhat unkind in his inflicting this torture, (laughs) he calls it torture, (laughs) it appears Christ to be somewhat unkind in inflicting this in torture for a time on those who were innocent. Yet anxiety of this kind was profitable to them, and Christ did them no injury. Right? Calvin's saying that, They felt anxious for a time. They felt uncertain for a time, but our Lord did no injury to them. He didn't sin against them by doing this. Why? Calvin says this, It is proper that when the children of God have heard the sentence of the ungodly, they should themselves feel uneasy, that they may guard themselves against hypocrisy, examining themselves and their own way of life, right? That when the godly hear that there's sin among them, they tremble. And this is indeed a good thing. But we see that after these disciples examine themselves, Peter and John are not content with this sin to remain in their midst. The disciples are not content for this sin to remain in their midst. And so we see this interaction between Peter and John and Jesus asking, Lord, who is it? We need to know who this one is that's going to betray you. This is a treacherous sin, and we can't allow it to remain in our midst. And we see something very interesting in verse 26. Our Lord does not leave them in suspense, but He subtly identifies his betrayer by the giving of dipped bread to Judas Iscariot, not only completely fulfilling the prophecy of Psalm 41 that says, he ate my bread, but we see in a sense showing this one last act of goodwill and love toward Judas, his own enemy, 
so that Christ could deter him from this madness. We see even that will not cause him to turn from his sin. And so that leads us to our third and final point, the betrayer ultimately dismissed. The betrayer dismissed. We see, as we've said so many times, the same sun that melts the ice hardens the clay. The same sun that melts the ice hardens the clay. That instead of this act of love and goodwill softening Judas's heart so that he would repent and turn, we see that it only hardens him in his sin. And this gives Satan greater power over him. We read this in verse 27. It says, Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Satan entered into him. That it's amazing to contemplate and think about in the whole of John 13. Jesus is our perfect example of how to love our enemies. He's the perfect example of how to love our enemies. In Romans 13, Paul quotes from Proverbs 25 and says this, if your enemy is hungry, give him something to eat. (laughs) If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. Jesus had just washed Judas's feet. He had just given him food and drink, showing him this great act of love and self-sacrifice. But instead of Judas desiring to be washed inwardly by Christ, he only desires money, greed, and power. He is hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And this gives Satan a greater power over him. And we see that even though the disciples do not know what Judas is doing and why Jesus said this to him, we can kind of zoom out and say they should have known. They should have known it was going to be Judas. Jesus saw the way that Judas responded to Mary's prior act of love and worship, right? In breaking the alabaster jar of oil over the feet of Christ. He saw the way he cared more for money than for this genuine act of love and worship in Christ. And this greed, this love of money is what Satan is what gives Satan a foothold of temptation in Judas's heart, a fiery dart by which will lead to the betrayal and death of the only perfect son of God for a mere 30 pieces of silver. That we see, we can say with confidence that Satan here, the father of lies, promises life to Judas. You can have money, you can have greed, you can have power, but instead it only brings Judas death. Not only death physically, but death eternally. That we'll see in John's Gospel that after Judas here goes out and dismissed, we see that it was night. (laughs) A, A physical picture of the darkness that has come upon him. He will go out to betray our Lord with a mere kiss, and he ends up taking his own life because of this. Not out of true repentance, but worldly sorrow. And just like David's betrayer, Absalom is hung on a tree, is split open, and suspended between heaven and earth. We can see what that pointed to. 
And so it's a very sobering passage that we come to in John chapter 13, where we see this betrayer of our Lord predicted in the Old Testament, identified by Christ, and ultimately dismissed from the disciples. And so as we think about how to contemplate this passage and what it means for us, there's three things that we need to look at this morning. The first one is this, the sovereignty of God in all things. The sovereignty of God in all things. That as we read this morning, Jesus knows whom he has chosen. He knows whom are his. He is not surprised by this betrayal. Not only was it predicted in the Old Testament, but our Lord as God is sovereign over this whole situation. And we see that the Father's sovereign purposes will never be disrupted by Satan. And in fact, it is actually the very means that God uses to accomplish his purpose. It is the, the wicked deeds of evil men that God uses ultimately to accomplish his purposes of salvation. It is through the betrayal and death of Christ that God's people are ultimately saved. Promised in the garden, typified in the life of David, fulfilled in Christ. The seed of the serpent against the seed of the woman. And in Acts chapter 2, you can read about this. It's Peter is preaching to them, and he says, you meant it for evil. You turned over our Lord, you wicked and evil men, but this is according to the foreordained knowledge of God and His will. So we see the sovereignty of God in all things, even in the betrayal of the perfect Son of God. But the second thing we see in this passage is the sober reality of false professors. The sober reality of of false professors. That as we've said before already, not all those who are washed outwardly are washed inwardly. Not all those who are washed outwardly are washed inwardly. Judas had been washed by Christ, his feet cleansed and purified, but he had not been cleansed inwardly by the saving blood and spirit of Christ. And so we can say not all who make a profession of faith or who say they're Christians are truly Christians. Not all who are members of a church or go under the waters of baptism are truly saved. As we read this morning, Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. That it is the work of Satan to blind the minds of unbelievers and to dull people to the sinfulness of sin. And this is a sobering truth, but it is what Scripture teaches. And I was so helped by this quote from John Gill. He says, we see in this passage that the highest office and the greatest gifts cannot secure men from the temptations of Satan. The highest office and the greatest gifts cannot secure men from the temptations of Satan. Judas was a disciple of Christ. He was a disciple of Christ. He was given the greatest gift of walking with our Lord during his earthly ministry, and he still succumbed to the temptation of Satan. Betrayed the perfect Son of God. Judas, a professor of Christ, he was even given charge of the money bag. They saw him as someone that was worthy of their trust, and yet he proved to be a false professor, rather a lover of money, eating the bread of Christ, yet lifting up his heel against him. 
that Judas succumbed to the temptation of Satan and proved himself to be a false professor. And it is this sobering reality that causes us to see that none of us are exempt from examining ourselves. That none of us are exempt from examining ourselves. That is because it is this precise sin that we commit every day. Matthew Henry said, Have not we behaved exactly this way toward God, eating of His daily bread and yet lifting up our heel against Him? (laughs) How often have we gone through life unthankful, ungrateful for what God has given, using the blood in our veins to boil in anger at others, using the breath in our lungs to sin against Him, using the tongue in our mouth that He has given us to curse Him and those made in His image. We commit the same sin. We commit the same blasphemy. And so the question that we have to ask ourselves is, how can anyone be saved? Why were the eleven, how were the eleven kept? How can anyone make it to the end? And that brings us to our third and final point this morning, the preserving power of Christ the preserving power of Christ. That while we see the false son identified and dismissed, we also see in this passage the preserving power of Christ for His new covenant people. That we see in this passage that Christ will preserve His people. He says, I know whom I have chosen. (laughs) And if you go to John 17 in the great high priestly prayer of our Lord, He says these words, While I was with them, I protected and preserved them by your name, the name that you gave me, and not one of them has been lost. Not one of them has been lost, except for the son of destruction, so that the Scripture may be fulfilled. We see in Christ's prayer, it is Him who protects and preserves His people. It's not their abilities. It's not their works. It is the preserving and protecting power of Christ for His people. That not one of His sheep will be lost. That no one is able to snatch them out of His hand. This is the eternal security that God's people have. That Christ will keep His people to the end. The perseverance of the saints, as we call it. It's one of the benefits of God's covenant of grace. But I think in John chapter 13, in a very unique way, and in a very important way, we see the means that God uses to protect and preserve His people and keep them from falling away. That it's not only by giving them the gift of faith and working repentance in them, but it's by causing them to tremble at their sin. It's by causing them to tremble at their sin and the sin of others. That true Christians hear of sin among them and among themselves and are afraid, right? When we hear of some grievous sin by a Christian, right? Maybe it's a pastor sinning and falling away. Maybe it's someone, as we mentioned, um, the, the, the brother in Utah that's in a great and grievous sin. It shouldn't cause pride to rise up in us and say, wow, I'm glad I'm not him, or that could never be me. In fact, it's the opposite. It's meant to bring humility 
to us as God's people. As we saw in verse 22, the disciples looked around at one another. One commentator said, this is a picture of the godly who when they hear mention of some sin in their ranks, they are terrified and sorrowful, right? When we hear of sin, we should be terrified and sorrowful. That part of the work of true saving faith is not only yielding obedience to God's commands, not only embracing the promises of God, but as our confession says in chapter 14, verse, or chapter 14 paragraph 2, trembling at the threatenings. Trembling at the threatenings of God's Word. That that's why we have a confession of sin every week. We're not just meant to go through the motions, say the prayer, read the passage. We're meant to bring our sin before a holy God. We're, to me- we're meant to look at our sin and the ugliness of our sin full in the face. We shouldn't be afraid to do that as Christians. We shouldn't be afraid to look at the ugliness of our sin full in the face. But we're meant to bring it before the Lord with trembling joy. <laughs> knowing that He is able to pardon us. It is because of Christ that we can have our sins forgiven and that this is the very means God uses to protect and preserve His people and sustain us to the end. As Christians, we will go through difficulties. Maybe individually, we will fall into a season of sin and despair. Maybe corporately, we will have a season of struggling but we have the great promise of Christ that He will preserve His people, He will build His church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And we're going to sing about that in our final song, and I'll close with this verse from the great hymn, The Church is One Foundation. It says this, The church shall never perish, her dear Lord to defend to guide, sustain, and cherish is with her to the end. Though there be those that hate her and false sons in her pale, against both foe and traitor, she ever shall prevail. God will keep His people. He will sustain them to the end. Even though there's false sons amidst the church, God will preserve His people. His people will be brought to the end. And we can trust and hope that Christ, by His perfect mediation and by the sealing of the Spirit, He's able to keep us. So let's thank Him for His grace and trust in Christ. Let's pray this morning. Lord, we thank You for Your grace. We thank You for the mercy that You've poured out us in the person and work of Christ. That apart from Your preserving power and apart from Your perfect intercession and mediation, we would be exactly like Judas. Betraying our Lord for a mere 30 pieces of silver. Like Esau, who gave up his birthright for a bowl of soup. How often, Lord, do we eat of our daily bread that you have given us and yet lift up our heel against you. Using the the faculties that you've given us to sin against you. And so we we come before you, Lord, humbly, acknowledging how frequent our sin is, how great our sin is, how great our need is. But we come, Lord, thankful that because of what Christ has done, He is able to preserve us. He's able to keep us and protect us. That because of His perfect intercession and the sealing of the Spirit, we have hope.
We know that you will sustain us to the end, sometimes using these threatenings to make us tremble, to make us look at our sin in a different and new light, to wake us up from our sobriety, to wake us up rather from our slumber, to wake us up that we might be of a sober mind, that we might see our sin rightly, and that we might come to you in repentance and faith day after day after day. And so we thank you, Lord, for the work of Christ. We pray that you would continue to keep us and that as we come now to the table of the Lord, you would sustain us and nourish us and assure us that if our faith is in Christ, we have hope. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.